Why did Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me as always is Brian Dembozik. So Brian, we are looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, also known as the Transfiguration. This is uh, this is going to be a pretty cool one for us because it's been quite a while since I think we've talked about this passage at all in any way, shape, or form uh, together. But it's also a very well-known passage by many more experienced Christians um, with their Bibles. And so, and it's certainly one that, you know, gets, gets heard, heard preached fairly often. That's, yeah, it's all true. I, I do wonder though, I think some of us still struggle to understand exactly what's going on in this. What we, we can kind of understand the details. All right, Jesus goes up a mountain. He was glowing, Peter and John, you know, and so forth. And Moses and Elijah appear, but why? And I, I think that's something that we'll have fun talking about a little bit. And even if you even if you're listening to this and you know the general why, well, don't forget there's always more that Scripture has to teach you, especially from a very uh, from a familiar passage. So, hopefully, as we talk about this passage together again, Matthew seventeen one through thirteen, we you will find uh, find something that is helpful for you and uh, for you personally and for your ministry as well. So, uh, Brian, how about we kick off this discussion by doing what we always do and set up some context? Very similar to the episodes that we've had recently. This is at the pretty much the start of the final year of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, I think as we look at this passage, though, it's it's helpful to think of what's going to be happening soon after this. Um, soon after this, Jesus will begin his determined drive toward the cross. Luke mentions this in his gospel, Luke 9.51, we read, When the days were coming to a close for him, meaning Jesus to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And you see him, you know, you've heard the expression, he set his face toward Jerusalem. There's this resoluteness about him, knowing what awaits for him, knowing the cross awaits, the the tomb, of course, and the, the empty tomb. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem to fulfill one of the major things of his ministry, one of the major tasks of him dying on the cross. So this this passage we're looking at today just comes before that. And it as we dive into it, it'll make sense how we need to see it connected with what Jesus will be doing soon after this. Right. So what are some things that we should be asking as we are reading and studying this passage. And just to help everybody, I'm going to start start us off before we even answer by actually reading it from the CSB. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. 
with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a loud voice from the, and a voice, voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so Jesus, and so the disciples asked him, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and, he, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So that's our passage that, that we are looking at. So what are some questions that, that we should be asking from this? Yeah, I think one is kind of what I intimated a minute ago. What's going on here? What is this all about? And I'll kind of, I think there are two big ideas. I'll take the first one. I'll let you kind of address the second one, Aaron. But the first one is there is a, a pretty clear reference to Moses here in the book of Exodus. Um, and, and we see it. You may read over it quickly. But then when you kind of go back and, and kind of are looking for it, it does become pretty clear. So let me let me read a passage from Exodus 24, 13 through 18, in light of what you just read. And, and hopefully we can see these kind of connecting points and, and we'll draw them out, of course, right after. But here's what going all the way back to Exodus. This is what we read about Moses. Verse 13, so Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Aaron and her are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So, I mean, there are several details that... that Matthew was connecting to on purpose. You have the six days introduction. You have going up a mountain. You have the Lord appearing. You have just a handful of individuals kind of pairing off from the group to go up that mountain. You have the reference to a cloud. You have the shining. We don't see it here in what I just read, but after this, if you look at Exodus 34, 29 through 35, we see that Moses' face shone from having been up on the mountain in God's presence. So the big idea here becomes really apparent when you, you see these notes that Matthew is declaring in this passage something really important, that Jesus is the new and better Moses. It makes sense when we remember that Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. That's who he had in mind. And so they, yeah, Abraham was, you know, Father Abraham, he played a significant role in salvation history for the Israelites, for us as well, of course. But Moses also had a significant role. Moses was the lawgiver, and they lived and died according to the law. So Matthew here is saying, no, 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 there's something better than the law. The law did not save. 
Jesus, the new, the better Moses, is providing in the law fulfiller. He's providing salvation. You're going to be seeing that come to pass in what follows after this. So, again, keeping in mind that after this, shortly after this, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. The gospel narratives pick up the pace driving toward the execution of Jesus, the crucifixion, and his resurrection. So it makes sense that, that right here, Matthew kind of pauses and says, "Just let's be crystal clear. Moses was good, but here's a better Moses, it's Jesus. So when we read the transfiguration, that's one thing that should just jump out at us that that Matthew is is telling us. And one of the things there that is really important that we that we think about um, or that we recognize as you're saying, you know, Jesus as the the new and better Moses is there's there is a fulfillment of this promise that uh, that Moses himself made in his his farewell address to the people before he died and didn't get to go into the promised land as well. Um, that he said that there would be another who would come after him who would be more powerful than him and that they were to listen to him. And all of these things are really, really important, especially when we Think about the second thing that's going on here, which is this fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah. And that's what ultimately Matthew is pointing to and is the answer to that on the nose question that uh, that kicked off this episode, because we see Moses and Elijah, the 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 two people who in the in the Jewish culture epitomized the, the epitomized basically the, the 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 totality of the scriptures, the law and the prophets. Um, so Moses, obviously being the lawgiver, as you said, Elijah being the prototypical prophet, the great like the the epitome of what a prophet um, was to be, um, and. And, and that part itself is kind of cool. There's also this really interesting thing because I mean. People who are familiar with the, the the Exodus account and the wandering in the wilderness know that Moses was barred from entering the promised land. And and it was because of his unfaithfulness. It wasn't just it wasn't just all of the other people. He <laughs> he was one of them too. Um, and astute readers will also note in um, in numbers that when um, when the spies who went into the promised land gave their bad report and God uh, passed judgment on the people and said, no one here is going to go in except for these two, Joshua and Caleb, he did, he, he kind of subtly said Moses wasn't going in either. So it's it shouldn't have been a surprise for anyone who's who's reading the story. But one of the things that's kind of cool here is is depending on where this is actually taking place, Moses might have actually been in the promised land when this happened. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is kind of cool. Yeah, it is. We don't know exactly where this this happened if you do some research there are some traditional mountains that are believed that it could have happened on Tabor I think is one Hermon um, but we don't quite know where this this occurred. But it is kind of interesting. If it were in the promised land, then then it's kind of uh, a divine concession <laughs> to Moses. I mean, God is true. He he was not allowed into the promised land as he was living. But is this kind of a a picture? It's it's a fun fact, but it could also be a very subtle picture. And I would not 
I would not base any teaching on this, of course. Uh, it's just kind of fun to think about. Is this kind of a way of God revealing redemption to us, that he is the redeemer? Uh, we mess up. Moses, that, I think that's why Moses was disqualified. He sinned, but the reason why he was disqualified is to make it abundantly clear. Hey, Israel, one of your heroes, he wasn't even good enough to enter the promised land. Um, mm-hmm. Don't worship the heroes, worship the God behind them. Um, but is this kind of a, a subtle uh, hint at the redeeming nature of God here with Moses being in the promised land if this occurred on a mountain in the promised land? And and I kind of think, again, just my guess, it it did. Uh, they were in the region of Galilee when this happened, so it kind of makes sense that they would have stayed there and uh, been in the promised land proper. But it's an interesting fact to, or thought to think about. Yeah, for sure. And and I think with this as well, one of the things that's that's important is we think about it at from the perspective of um, you know, being this fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah, that Jesus is in fact this person that they've been waiting for. This person that they these three in particular, Jesus is in inner circle, they kind of had some inklings of and and Peter was the one who um, who previous to this had actually outright stated that he was the son of God um, and the Messiah. So it's not for him. It wasn't just an inkling. He just didn't understand what that meant. Yeah. But here is this foreshadowing of the kingdom as well. And so you see Jesus in Matthew 16, 28, saying that, Truly I say to you, some of you who are with me right now will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming with, coming with his kingdom. And um, that's my butchered paraphrase, so um, I apologize, everybody. Don't email me. So, um, and, and just to be clear, <laughs> just to be clear, that's the verse 1628 is the verse that precedes what we're looking at. It yes, is exactly. Before this, yeah. Exactly. That's what happens six days in the timeline of the book, six days before this event, or really this is the seventh day of that, going back to what you were saying, because it says after six days, um, language is important. <laughs> um, this happens. And so we kind of get to see uh, something of a fulfillment of that here, but it's a smaller fulfillment and then something greater yeah. is going to come. Yeah, I so, think it's, it's Matthew. Um, yeah, it's, it's Matthew kind of showing, hey, I just mentioned kingdom. Let me kind of give you a picture, a little foreshadowing picture of what that's going to be. Jesus in fully in his glory, unveiled. Uh, you know, God's people united there and so forth. And, and yeah. so, yeah, I think it's just, a, it's a, it's a really, really powerful snapshot of eschatology. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, as we continue to think about the, uh, the, the coming Messiah, the, like his revelation of Jesus revelation of his identity, the coming of the kingdom, this is that, this is kind of that hinge passage in Matthew's gospel where and every gospel has one like this and most of them it has it has a trans transfiguration account that serves as this but this is the time when from this moment on Jesus is talking about the fact that he is going to die and they are on their way to Jerusalem and so the, and he is getting them ready for this and they don't get it but he is doing his best to get them ready so that is um, so. Those are kind of a couple of the big ideas that we that that we've got here. What's something else? 
I think another thing is is whenever Peter is around, we always kind of need to be ready to ask what Peter's doing. Are um, we going to give Peter a hard time again? Well, he deserves a little bit of a hard time because, I mean, he, he this is a little interesting little tidbit of him saying, hey, let's, let me set up some shelters for, for you three. Um, and he's not rebuked outright, but it does seem like it was a mistake on his part. Um, so I think the first thing is, what was Peter thinking? What might he have been thinking? And again, we're just kind of taking a somewhat educated guess here, but... It, it to me it seems like Peter's thinking this is the end zone as we just talked about there, there's this this foreshadowing of the kingdom here um, again Jesus unveiled um, in in more of his glory and they're experiencing this and they see Moses and Elijah um, I mean this is an amazing this is, maybe this is where we get the pun from or the, the the phrase mountaintop mountain high experience I mean this is camp experience like none other. And Peter wants to stay there. And so we can appreciate it. Any of us who have been um, in, in maybe a conference or a, a retreat-type setting and just got Maybe really even moved, a Zoom meeting. Maybe even a Zoom meeting. Um, listening to a podcast. Uh, no, that doesn't happen. But there are these times where we're just like, hey, I just want to live here forever. I, I just want to stay here because I'm close to God. This is just an amazing experience. I never want to leave. And it seems like Peter had that go through his mind. The problem is twofold. One, that was not the end zone. Um, that, that was just a temporary thing. Jesus still had work to do, namely the cross. So they couldn't stay there. Uh, it would be wrong on to stay there because the kingdom would come by Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb and so forth. Um, the second problem seems to be that that and this is really subtle, but it seems like Peter wanted to treat Jesus, Moses, and Elijah equally. Let me build a shelter for each of you, equating almost Jesus along with Moses and Elijah, which of course would be a faux pas. Uh, Jesus is not equals with them; they are not his peers. Um, he is above them, and so again, I, I'd be gentle with with this. Uh, we could be overreading. Maybe Peter was going to build a bigger, better shelter for Jesus. I don't know. But it does seem like that was a, uh, a slip potentially here, that, that Peter's still struggling to see that Jesus is unique. Uh, yes, seeing Moses and Elijah would be amazing. If, if they appeared to us right now, it would be an amazing thing. But we ought not worship them or treat them on the same level as the Son of God. So, what was Peter thinking here? I've got to appreciate it. I think we all can relate, but was it the the best thought process? Probably not. The uh, the last question that we should be asking, and this this really, you know, you're one of the things you're going to notice is typically we ask uh, we ask a question that is built around this idea of how does a, how does a passage point us toward the gospel? And one of the things that you're not going to hear as we continue our conversation is that we're not actually directly asking that question. And part of that is, is because it should be pretty clear from our explanation of, of this, how it's pointing toward the gospel, because it's so overt in the passage itself. It's setting up everything that's coming. Um, and that really gets into our last question before we start talking about how we would, how we would approach this passage from a discipleship perspective, which is why did Jesus forbid his disciples? Why did he forbid Peter, James, and John from telling anyone about this event? And 
the answer is that the full nature of his work had not been done. His mission wasn't finished yet. And so Jesus didn't want people to grasp an incomplete Messiah or Savior. I mean, honestly, he had enough he had enough problems with his own with with the 12 grasping an incomplete Messiah or Savior. He like just from a like thinking about Jesus, the human, it's like the people management problems that are going to come from that. That's not going to work. But what are the risks to the gospel itself? Well, if you think about it, if people are, are saying, oh, this is the Messiah. Well, what are they going to try and do? They're going to try and make him king. They're going to do all that. They're going to try to prevent him from harm when the whole point of him coming is to go and die in order yeah. to rescue people from sin. Yeah, I, th- I think it kind of connects back with Peter. I think people would have done what Peter wanted to do. This is it. It doesn't get any better than this. Um, let's live here and you know miss the, the grander nature of what Jesus had come to do. Yeah, and that really leads well into uh, what I mentioned before, which is how do we how do we use this passage um, effectively, or what can we what ca- guidance can we offer um, as people? study this passage with others. Yeah, I think uh, one thing is this passage is a good reminder to us of what is yet to come. Uh, again, if if we're seeing this correctly, and uh, this transfiguration is a hint, a foretaste of Jesus coming to his kingdom in fullness, and of course that will happen in someday in the future, it could be later today, it could be a year from now, it could be a hundred years from now. We, we don't know when, but at some point we know that Jesus will return. And when he does, he will put to death sin and death itself. He will establish his kingdom perfectly. We, we are part of his kingdom now, but it is not in full uh, because sin still occurs. And uh, so that kingdom will be established in full. We will be with him forever and so forth. And so that we have to look into the future for that. And I think a lot of times when we're when we're studying God's word with people we're discipling, whether it be kids or uh, another adult or a Bible study group or whatever the case may be, I think we we often look backward, which we need to because we have to look back at what Scripture says and what happened in the past. But then when we look forward, we stop it today. So we look back. All right, this is what happened. Now, how does it shape me today? How should I live life differently today? How should my um, my 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 uh, emotions be informed by this and my affections stirred and my, you know, those, those really good, important discussions to have. But I would argue we also need to look forward as well. I, I think we need to have a better eschatological view as we study all scripture, that what is in store, what is the grand finale, if you will, of all things. And when I say finale, it's actually not. It's actually the beginning of, of the eternal kingdom. Um, but what is in store? So we look back, we look present, but we also have to look forward. And I think this is important because to one degree, it, it, it should give us that enthusiasm. It should give us excitement. It should give us urgency and, and motivation for how we live today. But also, it, it can motivate us to stay strong and, and endure difficulties and trials, knowing what is, what's going to happen one day. All these pains will be gone. All the difficulties will be gone and so forth. So I think as we're, as we're again, as we're discipling others, this is a great passage to kind of draw that to our attention, either by 
way of telling it for the first time or by, by way of reminder that this three, these three lenses, past, present, and future, should inform our study of God's word. I really appreciate, I really appreciate the way you put that, Brian, um, especially because I think one of the things that people often misunderstand when you use a word like eschatology um, or eschatological, that what we're not talking about when we use those words are um, subscribing to a specific viewpoint of how things come about. The goal is to focus on the end itself, the, the thing that all of those viewpoints ultimately agree on that Jesus is going to come back that he is going to that he is going to inaugurate his his kingdom in its fullness and that creation is going to be renewed restored redeemed and we will enjoy it with him forever man that's that's a good word Aaron because a lot of people who do study eschatology or are familiar with it that's they kind of see it it's a this dividing point right and we, we you know we hold to a certain view of how it's going to happen and unfortunately, and, and that matters. I, I think it's worth studying and and coming to your understanding. I think you need to hold it loosely. I think mm-hmm. you know, you, there are great arguments for the different approaches to that. But what you just said is so critical that we don't lose the proverbial forest through the trees and forget we all agree on this truth, or we, we should all agree. I think it's one mark of, of being orthodox that Jesus is returning somehow at some point, but he is returning. And that is the, that is the beauty of eschatology. That's the value of eschatology. Yeah. And that, um, and one key thing, um, just for those who, who, who may get, uh, you know, get a little antsy when you say some way, somehow, let's just be real clear. It is a, it is an actual, it's not some sort of metaphor. Yes. That's it's true. him actually returning. That's kind of a key Orthodox thing. And all Orthodox positions on this do agree on that. So, man, we made it quite a ways in this episode before an important caveat. I know it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. We're we almost done. That's right. So, but we've got one more point left, and and this one, um, I'm I'm so glad that you saved the 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 easiest one for me. You know, it's it's because it's almost my birthday. So, thank you. That's right. Happy birthday to you. So, the big have the the layup and the fun one to talk about. Go go to yes. Thank you, (laughs) thank you. I I, you you've given me the greatest gift of all. So. <laughs> At least for this podcast today. So um, the the big idea here that we want to encourage as we are discipling anybody, whether like whether they're the smallest people in our in our houses who um, you know are distracted by everything and anything, um, or they are you know mature, um, thoughtful passionate followers of Jesus um, who've been doing it a lot longer than us. Um, One of the things that we want to always be doing is we want to help one another see and understand and focus on studying scripture as one story, as a unified story of God's redemption, uh, of God's redemptive redemptive plan. Um, This passage is kind of one of those linchpin moments in it. So we're all about telling the telling the big story of Scripture. That's what we do. Um, and it's what 
Brian, I think it's fair to say it's it's part of what we were doing before we were part of a team that that you know actually does that um, for our yeah. jobs. <laughs> um, but um, but this is one of these passages that that is a reminder for us that if we're looking for these key moments in Scripture that say, oh yeah, this is this isn't just a collection of. Um, wise sayings and truths and, and principles for wise living. That there is something much, much bigger that's going on here that we have to, that we have to latch onto and and refuse to let go of in any way. It's this one, and because this passage doesn't make sense without a, without some kind of. Uh, without without the reality of it of this grand story at play, um, understanding Moses helps us understand this passage, understanding his importance, understanding um, Elijah and the prophets helps us understand this, understanding the kingdom motif that runs all through Scripture as well. This helps us understand all of this, all so many of the mega themes of Scripture come to a head in this passage and unite there as the story progresses. And so we can't lose sight of those things. Um, it makes the Bible make so much more sense and makes it and makes it honestly so much more beautiful than it can ever be in any other way, in my opinion. Um, and um, also you can email me all you want on that and we can talk all day long on it because that's what's fun for me. So um, Brian, that is uh, that's that's kind of the last piece of, uh, of of advice and encouragement I think we have for this week, isn't it? I, yeah, I think that's a great place to end and uh, all, anytime we get to to bang that drum for uh, reading scripture as a whole, that's a great closing thought. For sure. All right. So let's wrap it up there. And uh, so thanks for chatting today. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. 